We want to thank you for being here, being part of our Wednesday night service. Thank you for, for making the effort to be here tonight. And especially thank you if you're tuning in on, on the internet to, uh, to our service tonight. We have several announcements before Brother Ken comes to bring our Wednesday night lesson. Uh, sympathy is extended to the family of Annette Deaton, whose funeral service was today, and also to the family of Modena Green. This is Buster Green's aunt. Uh, we want to extend sympathy to both of these families. Uh, Brenda Dawson, J.T. Beard, Adrian Edge uh, are all recuperating from surgery, and Adrian Edge is with us tonight, so we're glad to see Adrian out again. Also, Shelby Mormon had to have uh, appendix surgery last night. Uh, he's home and uh, right now doing fine. The food pantry, uh, food pantry item this week is canned vegetables. The food pantry and clothes closet will be open tomorrow at 9 o'clock. On Sunday, it looks like it may be raining for our 8.30 outside service. Our plan B for Sunday morning is to have that service in the annex. Uh, we will have speakers sitting outside. Uh, you can park around the annex and hear, uh, hear the service live, or you can bring your lawn chairs and sit un under the breezeway or in the annex itself. Uh, you'll be able to hear in any of those places. So make plans to be here at 8.30 on Sunday morning if that's the service you've been coming to. Also, we'll have, a, have another service at 10.30 here in the auditorium. And that's all of our announcements and Brother Ken. Good evening, everybody. Great to see you. Let's sing a song together. Number three. Number three. We'll sing the first and third verse.
Let's have a prayer and then we will begin our study together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for a beautiful, cloudless day today. We thank you, Father, for the opportunities that you put in our hands. And I'm hoping that as we've come to the close of this day, that we can reflect on those things that were before us. And I pray we don't have any regrets. I pray that we acted in a way that we should. And that, that in doing so, that we brought glory to you. Lord, I thank you that we have an opportunity, an occasion like this to gather and to study your word. And especially as we have been talking about those things that can help us to become a great church. I pray, Lord, as we've been putting these building blocks together, that not only have we been challenged to act, but that we have acted. Those things that have been applicable to us personally, I really pray that everybody has seen what was necessary to do and then have been doing it. And I pray, Lord, as we're kind of coming to the end of this study, that we'll also continue to be open to what you have to say and that we'll live our lives knowing that your way is the best way. I pray, Lord, you'll help us tonight that we'll be able to deal with really a subject that is very contemporary, but that its application today really has some challenges. So I pray that you'll just help us to have open hearts and minds to what you have to say and what you've described and that we will work off of the basis of these truths and that we will empower great women in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. I kind of have the idea that if we could just capture what is the immeasurable power of womanhood, that the church would be better off today. It would be stronger as a result of not, not just those strong male leaders that we have in a congregation, but of women who feel the responsibility to act on those things that God has put in their hands to do. I hope you're not thinking, well, Ken, you're a man talking to women about what it is to be a great woman. You know, where, where are you coming off talking that way? Well, this isn't personal. This isn't what I think of the matter. I'm just trying to communicate what God says about the importance of the role of women in the church. Now some, especially today, and the reason why I mentioned in our prayer that it was a challenge for us, is that some have, I believe, in our quote-unquote modern time, have a misconception of the differences that exist between men and women and of the beauty that that represents. That each one, just let's, let's take God out of it for a minute. Each one just naturally has a role that they play in a society, in interactions with one another. Now, when you add God to the mix, now you have something that isn't just a good idea or that works, but something that is divinely oriented, and divinely sanctioned, 
God doesn't do a thing haphazardly or part of the way. Everything that God does, he does perfectly. And he sets in order so that the things that he has in mind to accomplish will be accomplished. It's just a matter of us submitting ourselves to his direction and then reaping the benefits because we have become a party to his will. Some people see in the description that the scriptures give, particularly the New Testament scriptures, they see restrictions placed upon women. And they have the idea that a woman is like in second place in terms of citizenship with the kingdom of God. That is not true. A couple of passages that oftentimes rub people the wrong way. One would be 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Well, the scripture there says that a woman is not to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be silent. The other passage that often creates heartburn for people has to do with that last notion that was mentioned in that text, the idea of silence. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34, that text tells us that she's to keep silent and to be submissive. Say, well... That whole notion there, that, that is an idea of putting women down. But that isn't the implication of the text at all. It is simply a reflection of what God has established in terms of order and responsibility. I'm going to say this because I believe that this is absolutely true. When it comes to our value, whether a man or a woman, and it comes to our redemption whether a man or a woman, everybody is on the same level ground. Everybody's level, in other words, at the foot of the cross. Jesus died for everybody equally so. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who's an heir according to the promise? Well, those who are in Christ, whether you're a Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All are equal in terms of their salvation. However, as regards form and function, men and women are, are very different. And in light of that, well, what I believe is a very obvious fact, but in light of that fact, God has ordained certain roles that perfectly are suited to the form and the function, whether you are a male or a female. Very specific. So if what we are giving attention to tonight the idea of empowering great women is something that's important to us, and I believe it is, if we're going to have a great church, then we need to appreciate what God thinks in terms of the opportunities that he gives to women and of the responsibilities that he's placed on them. So tonight, I want to start by looking at an Old Testament story about a great woman from the city of Shunem. 
Now, Shunem may not ring a bell with you, but I'll give you a little context. There was a man by the name of Elisha. Now, Elisha was a prophet of God who was serving Israel. Elisha, you might remember, was actually the protege of the most famous of the prophets. In fact, the prophet who represented all prophets, Elijah. Elisha follows in the footsteps. He takes on the mantle. Actually, he receives a double dose of that, which is not often mentioned. But Elisha was a prophet's prophet, and he had tremendous power from God. Well, it just seems, according to 2 Kings chapter 4, and much of what I'll reference here comes from that chapter According to this text, apparently Elisha liked to travel to Shunem quite a lot. And he'd stop and spend time with a particular family. Well, this was becoming such a habit that the woman suggested to her husband, you know what we ought to do? We ought to build a room on the side of our house, the upper room on the wall side, just for Elisha. So they built this room and they put a bed in it and a table and a chair and a lampstand. Now you may say, well, that was kind of sparsely decorated. <laughs> well, that might be true for our time, but for them, it suited Elisha's purposes great. But in this text, there's something said not only about how special this family was, but in particular about the woman in this family. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says simply that she was a notable woman. Now, the word notable there is a word that could be translated by the word great. This woman was not just a woman. She was a great Woman, And the idea of her being notable, great, is that, you know what, if, if we were just kind of standing around with Elisha talking about the women of his day, one of those names that would always come up would be this woman from Shunem. Now, as a side note, I just, I want to emphasize this. You know when the Bible says you're great? you're great. I know sometimes we talk about, well, the greatest this and the greatest that, blah, blah, blah. That's just a matter of opinion. But when the Bible says that you're something, you're something. So I look at this woman from Shunem and I ask, what, what was so great about her? Doesn't say anything about her beauty as though she were notable because of her unsurpassed physical attraction. It's not that. It doesn't say that she was notable or great because of her social position. Like she just, you know, she was known by every... That's not it. It doesn't say that she was notable or great because she was wealthy. That's not what made her stand out. Neither does it say especially that she was of a great intellect, just smarter than everybody else. Not that at all. 
The evidence that we have of this great woman is that as regards her place in life, the lot that she was cast living right here in Shunem is that she fulfilled the responsibilities that she had to the very best of her ability. She was just a great woman. Now, as a great woman, what was she like? Well, I know that she was a great homekeeper. She kept a good home. In fact, she kept a place that was so good that every time Elisha came by, he wanted to stop and eat there. You have people in your life like that. You are like, I got to go see so-and-so. Or if I go through this town, I'm definitely stopping there. Because there's just something about that home life that's attractive to you. I know that she was hospitable. In fact, so hospitable that she encouraged and then ultimately led her husband to build on to the house so Elisha would have an appropriate place to live or to stay when he was in town. I think that's especially noteworthy because of another thing that happens in this text. At verse 13, she says, I abide among my own people. And you say, well, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, Elisha was so impressed with what this woman and her husband were willing to do that through his own little protege, Gehazi, he says, hey, you know, is there anything I can do for you? I mean, this is amazing that you've built this room for me and you've taken care of me all these years. I'm telling you what, I, I want to help you out. So how about this? C could I go to the king and make a request for you? Or how about the rulers of the military? C could I put in a good word for you? Maybe they watch over your territory and make sure you're safe. She said, no, don't worry about us. You know, we just, we're happy to live right here among our own people. This is us. I don't expect anything special from you. I think it's noteworthy. Maybe just a great lesson in and of itself. She wasn't looking for something to come back to her. She was just a, a great woman who wanted to help somebody else out. I also know she was a faithful woman. And I want to talk about her faith in two different ways. One is initially. See, she is here married to her husband. They're going on in life. Here's an opportunity to help somebody, help Elisha. Elisha asks, can I help you? She says, no. He says, here's what I'm going to do for you. You don't want this help? I'm going to tell you, next year this time when I come back, you're going to have a child. And she's like, wait, what? <laughs> I didn't ask for a child. Yeah, you're going to have one. One of the greatest blessings in that time especially was the birth of a child and, and for a future generation of people. And that's in her hands right now. Wait, what? You, you did what? Yeah, she was given this child and oh man, you can imagine how exciting that life was until the son died. And when that son died, instead of falling into her despair, she had such trust in Elisha's relationship with God that she sought him out. Elisha came and raised her son from the dead. She had tremendous faith. And then a little bit 
later in the story, actually this occurs in chapter 8, is another demonstration of her, of her faith. In chapter 8, gone through a lot of circumstances with Elisha and his little helper Gehazi and you know, there's a lot of a lot of disappointing things that happen, but we kind of get back on an even keel, and there's been a famine. As a result of the famine, this woman from Shunem had to leave her home, left everything behind, moved into the land of the Philistines. She was there for seven years. When she came back, apparently her husband's dead, and she didn't have anything. Everything was taken from her. But still having faith and trust and the prophet Elisha on her side, all those things were restored to her. Now, I I don't know what your life is like. You're going to have disappointments come along. Triumphs are sprinkled in there. But whether you are riding a high or you've been plunged into the depths of a low point in your life. Where are you? You know, you only trust God when the good things happen. Are you still trusting God in the valleys? This woman, this woman had committed herself to serve her husband and her family, her God, in the very best way that she could. What had been put into her hands, she was willing to use to God's glory. When those things were taken from her, she did not necessarily fall into despair, but again trusted in God to the ultimate restoration of those things that she had lost. This woman from Shunem, she was on the basis of the grasping of opportunities and the fulfilling of her responsibilities, a great woman. So, I'm wondering, on the basis, there, I'm wondering on the basis of what the Old Testament described, a great woman, and then what the New Testaments share with us about the Lord's expectation of womanhood, especially in the church, what, what, would, you, what would you say, what would you piece together as being the ideal woman? Now listen, we're living in an age where you're getting all kind of mixed messages about that. And the general idea or assumption is that men and women ought to be equal and that we're just, you know, we're we're basically all the same. Okay, hey, I appreciate equality in the workplace and women getting paid reasonable wages according to the work that they do. Peace on that. Wonderful. Great advance in society. But understand this. Men and women are very different. And God's expectation of the woman is very different from society's expectation. I'm going to draw you back to the very beginning. When God created man, he created man, mankind, male and female. We don't get the breakdown of how that unfolded until we get to Genesis chapter 2. But when we do get there... We find out that the woman was created for the man as a helper who was comparable to him. Now, comparability or compatibility is the sense that what the man lacked was being fulfilled in what the woman provided. 
the woman was taken from the man, and then they're joined back together in marriage. The two become one flesh. The idea there is that the man and the woman, apart from one another, are not complete humanity. It's the coming together of the two that make a complete human, a complete representation of what mankind is, male and female. Okay, so let's think about the woman half of the equation. What, what is, in God's mind of it, in terms of opportunity and responsibility, what is it that God is looking for with the woman? You may be surprised to find that it's not what most modern people are talking about. Not that whole debate about equality in the workplace. Not about, you know, equal voting rights and stuff like that. Battles that have been fought over generations and generations. That, that's not the kind of things that God thinks about. God thinks about humanity. God thinks about that coming together of the two to make the one. So in order for that equation to work, the woman has to take up certain responsibilities and opportunities. And those are most often found in her responsibility and opportunity within the home. So just as we saw with the woman, Shunem, the great woman, she was a homemaker. Well, well guess what? <laughs> the same thing was the expectation of those women who were in the church in the first century, that they would, you know, among other things that they might do, here's the one thing you need to particularly give attention to, and that is you're going to be a homemaker. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, you get some real specifics about it in verses 4 and 5. Now, the older women are teaching the younger to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I think that last phrase right there is, is important. It isn't necessarily that somebody watching you, if you're, not, if you're not serving as a wife like you should, you're not loving your husband, not loving your children, being discreet and chaste and homemaker and good and all those things, then somehow or other people are going to talk bad about you. That might be true, but I don't think that's the major point here. The major point here is if you're not fulfilling that role, that's a blasphemy against God. You say, Ken, that's pretty heavy. What? No, I'm not making that up. This text says that the, the mindset ought to be, you know what, I can do a lot of things. I can have a lot of hobbies and a lot of interests in my life. But the one thing that I need to focus my intent upon as a woman to fulfill my role as a woman is to be sure that I take care of the home. In fact, I love the way he describes it. Not just the home exists and I'm going to do my best with it. A homemaker. Call her the queen of the home if you want to. That's what James Watkins said one time in a sermon. He talked about how if Foy took a spike and she drove it in the middle of the living room and put streamers to every corner, then he would just say, Foy, that's just the most beautiful thing. I love it. Well, I came home and Anita said, you know, it's about time to change the color in the bedroom. And I said, no, we're not changing it. It's that, you know, basic color, and if we were to ever sell the house, well, we'd want it to be that color. No. She said, well, now, James Watkins said 
You know how that goes. Well, James Watkins was right. And James Watkins was right not because he's James Watkins and he is right. It's because the Bible said so. The Bible said she's the homemaker. She's the queen of the home. That's her realm. Why would I step in that if that's not my role? Also within the framework of that, it's an extension of it, I believe, is the idea, just as this woman of, of Shunem had respect for her husband and all these things, wasn't just going to build on unless her husband gave her uh, the right to do so, is the idea of submissiveness in the relationship. There is a hierarchy established by God. And when we follow that hierarchy, life is better. Things, things just work better. One example of that is what's said in Ephesians chapter 5. The, the start of that whole section in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Okay, Jesus is head of the church. He saves her. We'll go on to find out that Jesus died for her. Husband, you love your wife like your own body. Oh, well, I die for her too, right. Well, this woman, in recognition of your willingness to love her so much you die for her, she's going to submit to you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as though you were submitting to the Lord. And, and then the conclusion of that is at verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a submissive attitude. I, I respect you. Well, you can go into a lot of that if you want to. You can say, well, I respect him because God said I have to. Okay, uh, that'd be fine. But really, it's most likely in response to the way he treats you. You're going to respect him because he, he loves you so much. And he, he doesn't just also respect your role as homemaker and queen of the home. He loves you in that role and respects you for what you do. You see, both, not, not just the woman, both have opportunities and responsibilities in that home. So if I have the ideal going, I, I have the groundwork, I understand my responsibility, then we ought to be able to say without too much heartburn, Women who accept their responsibility and grasp the opportunities that God has given them, those women recognizing their role can be great leaders in the church. You say, well, wait a minute, Ken, are you saying that, that the, the woman can be a preacher and an elder and have authority over the man? No, didn't we already cover that? That, that was a restriction in the scriptures. No, she's not going to be preaching. No, she's not going to be an elder in the church. No, she's not going to be having authority over the man. But yes, she is able to lead. Wait, if she can't do those things, how in the world would she lead? Well, did I mention that men and women are different? And because men, are women, men and women are different, that, that means that God has ordained women with certain characteristics that I'm going to list a few here uh, in this section that I believe women are better at than men. Therefore, by extension, because they're better at that, 
better equipped by God to do things, then they're able to lead in that, set a pace, set a pattern by which it's done. One thing would be the idea of unity. You know, we talk a lot about unity, the importance of being one, caring for one another, uh, the matter of fellowship and just generally getting along with one another. Well, here's something that I know about women. Now, by the way, let me stop right here and give a disclaimer. When I'm describing the role of women or characteristics that women have, you'll say, well, I know a guy who is like that. Okay, peace. You know what? I, I'm not saying that there aren't guys who, who are equipped to do some of these things. I'm just saying, generally speaking, women tend to be leaders in some of these areas. One is with regard to unity, and that is, that in my mind, that's because women tend to be more social beings than men are. Here's what I notice. I notice that when I want to do something, I tend to communicate with myself most. <laughs> I, I like to ask myself what my opinion of a thing is. A woman will ask all of her friends about what their opinion is. Generally speaking, very much more social. When you have social networks or connections with other people, you're bridging relationships. And that's exactly what unity is all about. Women, women can teach us a lot about how to get along with one another, how to network with one another, how to create oneness and more permanent bonds. I think that lends itself to being a great church. I've also noticed this. I've noticed that women are, generally speaking, better teachers of young children. And I think that's primarily because women tend to be nurturers. I taught a little ch children's class one time. I was the lead teacher in that class. And here's what I'm going to admit to you. Now, I, I was not a preacher at the time. I was a draftsman in an architectural office, but I wanted to do church work. And so we were assigned this little group of kids. They couldn't even read yet. So I thought this will be a cinch. Got through the story in about five minutes. And then we got some eager kids ready to do something. And I got this great idea. I said, they're, they're just little kids. I'll just read the teacher instructions to them. And as I began reading the teacher instructions to my little group of kids, one of them stood up and he said, This is ridiculous. <laughs> After that, I determined I was going to do much better. <laughs> I, I am not a children's teacher, I'll just tell you. Now, the elders come along and say, Kid, we'd like you to funny, hilarious. That's, that's ridiculous. Women tend to be nurturers, tend to be more astute at teaching children and to helping them to relate their life to God. That's just the way it is. And, and if we use women that way, if they lead the way, uh, we'll have a great church as a result of that. I know that women are involved in good works. You say, well, a lot of men do good works too. Yeah, I do. But how many do you know in Scripture that are actually noted 
for the thing that they did. And so noted, so important was that work, that when they died, they were raised from the dead so they could continue that good work. Well, I only know of one woman, no, no others, but I know of one woman who had that about her. A woman by the name of Tabitha or, or Dorcas. In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, she was known for her good works and charitable deeds. She cared for other people, specifically widows. And when she died, they mourned her death. And probably we're asking the question, now who's going to do this work? And the answer is, well, nobody. Peter, will you raise her from the dead? You know, God graced her with additional life because of the good work she did. Now, a lot of times I look around and I see the work that's being done, and guess what? We say, we'll put a deacon in charge of this, but we'll ask the women how we're going to do it. Why would we do that? Well, first of all, because maybe we're pretty smart. Maybe they know how to do it better than we do. Absolutely. Let the women take the lead in doing the good works that they can do, just like Dorcas did. I think, I think it's a good thing even in terms of visitation, especially hospital visitation. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I love visiting people. I've been in some of your homes. I, I go to the hospitals and the nursing homes, and that, that's a difficult task for me. But sometimes I'm accompanied by my wife, and something about it just makes it easier. I don't know if it's, I think it's just her sense of compassion. You know, I, I want to help people. I want to, I want to, I'm a doer. I want to do something. Sometimes it's just important to stop and listen. And maybe is, is your ability however limited that might be, to show compassion, literally to, to suffer with the person. I think, I think women have a greater capacity for that than men do. Not saying men aren't compassionate, but women certainly have a great capacity for compassion. And just as much as the women are able to teach the younger ones, the little kids, well, the text that I referenced a moment ago from Titus chapter 2 indicates that the older women were responsible to teach the younger women. I know we have a Bible class, ladies' Bible class, on Tuesdays. I think that's fabulous because that falls in line with this teaching here that the older women are to teach the younger. That's from Titus chapter 2 at verse 3. And then you had that list of things that they were going to teach them. Absolutely leaders in that field. That's what helps to create a great church, a great environment for growth. Women are also great evangelists. And I mean people who can conduct a Bible study. You say, well, isn't that the prerogative, the, the main work of men? I know lots of men that do Bible studies, no doubt about that. But look at those scriptures. When I think of Aquila and his work of teaching Apollos, well, guess what? He wasn't alone, right? He did that with Priscilla, Acts chapter 18, verse 26. The Apostle Paul had his hands full. <laughs> and, and by the way, I do not envy it, even though it was by inspiration. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you got two women who are basically at odds with one another, Yodia and Syntyche, 
And Paul says, well, let me just remind you of this. I want you all to get along, but I just want to remind you, you guys were my, my co-laborers. You know, let's remember the time when we got along. Women can be tremendous Bible students and tremendous uh, evangelists uh, sharing the gospel with, with others. And in fact, maybe part of that is compassion for a soul. It can be great leaders in that. And I know we've got women now very much involved in prison ministry and uh, letter writing and things like that. You reach another life. I think that's, I think that's something women tend to lead in. How about hospitality? You know, hospitality is a major subject in the scriptures. And eventually, you and I will talk about that at length. But a couple of passages that come to mind, Romans 12, verse 13 um, we're supposed to be given to hospitality. That means I'm not just hospitable. I desire to share and to open myself up to others. I know that the, the widow who is supposed to be over 60 years old and could have been taken in by the church, one of the things that qualified her in 1 Timothy 5 verse 10 was that she was very hospitable. She cared for other people. And I know the extent of that, kind of a... Um, I guess it creates a lot of questions more than anything, but that's Hebrews 13, verse 2. The, the, the impetus for being hospitable is, well, now you remember, there were some people who entertained angels un, unaware. And so, wow, okay, I want to be hospitable. Most women are at the head of the line with regard to preparations for and care for other people. I know that was true with the woman there in Shunem, and she was, a, she was a notable or a great woman. And so I'm thinking that today that our women can help this church to be a great church. That can happen if our women will realize the opportunities that are before them, the responsibilities that God has placed upon them and then act. And you know what? I thank God for you. I thank God for, for marvelous and matchless women, Christian women who have taken the responsibilities and opportunities that God has given and have acted on them. Great women build great churches. I believe that's absolutely true. All right, we're going to close with prayer. After that, I want our parents, I, I bet mostly it'll be women, <laughs> but I want our parents to go ahead and leave quickly and pick up your kids and give them about 15, 20 seconds, and then the rest of you are dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to, to talk about your glorious creation, the woman. And thank you, Father, for blessing us with so many women here in this congregation. I pray that we will utilize their talents, their abilities to build a great church here. There's so many avenues as we've already seen and so many more that were not mentioned that, that women can lead in. And I pray, Lord, that you'll empower them and, and give them the, the desire to do those things and, you know, bring... bring bring to our elders' attention the abilities that they have so that we can 
maybe even venture into areas we've never been in before. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of that and how it's going to impact us to be a great church here in Boonville. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.